So often I start these talks with some sort of cheesy story or some sort of self-deprecating life story and Luke or somebody laughs and I go home with Taco Bell and cry and that's just normally how Sundays go. But with your permission, I want to start today and I do apologize for anybody who's visiting, but I do want to start today by just going for the jugular. I just want to start with something a little heavier. So you've all been warned. Because what Theo just read conjures up questions and thoughts that have haunted Christendom for generations. Samson, who we just read about, is one of the six, six individuals in the Bible who's cons- who is considered to commit the act of suicide. I told you we're going straight there. And each time the Bible records these events, there is never, never a moral evaluation made leaving a lot of us, Christians or not, to go and and, and wonder, going, is this the unpardonable sin? Is suicide the unforgivable sin? Or what life failure or self-identifying as a failure could lead to such a devastating decision within somebody's cut-short life? Erwin Lutzer, in his book simply called Failure, asks the question, what causes failure? What makes a man come to the end of his life and admit he lived in vain? What motivates a man to commit suicide because he is not as gifted as others? What causes a man to jeopardize his Christian testimony and have an affair with his neighbor's wife? The answer, sin. Specifically pride, covetousness, or sensual desire. So in order to address these heavy questions, I want to tell a cautionary tale of a man riddled with pride, covetousness, and sensual desire. Again, his name is Samson. Now, I recently just watched a documentary on Netflix about Orson Welles. Anybody see that documentary? It's pretty, it's good, right? It's really good. But this documentary starts like this. It says, how do you sum up a person's life? And more importantly, how do you find the truth? Because most certainly, there are lies. That same question could be asked of Samson. But dare I say it's lacking in lies. Why? Because it's riddled, riddled, peppered, littered, whatever you want to say, with failures. Nobody's lying saying they're more of a failure than they actually are. So failure, suicide, prostitution, sin, anger, violence, lust, sensual desire is all over Samson's life. Yet the most surprising part of it all is he seems to be, Samson, the anointed vessel of a holy, pure, perfect God. Even to the point of being honored by being listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of good faith. Hebrews eleven thirty two. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson. Now, we spent many weeks picking and prodding at these amazing men and women of faith, and we've tried to really expose their weaknesses as much as their strengths. But what we're discovering is, why is Sarah listed and not Rebecca? Or why is Samson listed and not Joshua? You want to know the real reason? Because those 16 are all failures. They were all failures. And failed humanness is relatable. It is relatable. Why? Don't be mad at me, but we're all failures. (laughs) It's because we're failures. If this list was perfect, like Clark Kent, 
Superman, super spiritual heroes, the chapter would almost feel insignificant. It would feel impossible. Like me reading a Fortune 500 magazine. Like, I can't do anything with this. But since it's filled with fallible, 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 well, no, that's something we can relate to. And it's even something the Bible wants to address far more than success. The Bible constantly wants to talk about failure. Now, before I continue, I think we all understand that there are two species of failure, two distinct species. There is the, I failed, you know, my test, I failed my driving test, if there's any 16-year-olds here, I failed whatever, like I failed, or my job failed due to uncontrollable circumstances or outside forces or simply our inability. Like me, I will always fail at trying to dunk. Always. You all know that, you believe that just by looking at me. Now we know, though, God is adequate for all kinds of failures, but I want to talk today more about the cut of failure made by our choices, which infect ourselves, others, and God. So this documentary went on to say, and it's perfect, it says our story starts where things go wrong, but we must start where things uh, go, before things go horribly wrong. And then the documentary says, it all begins with a promise. And that is exactly how a true character study of Samson must, must, must begin. In order to see why and how he ended up at his death and supposed considered suicide, we must go to his promise-filled beginning. And check this out, if you guys are Bible geeks or nerds or like any of this type of stuff, but this is the first time a judge is promised before birth. Samson is the very first. And you see, with every other judge, God raised somebody up who was already living. Oh, I'll, I'll, pick, I'll, I'll pick him. I'll pick Ethan. I'm going to do something with Ethan. Not this time. This is a very important. It's as if God is saying, there is nobody among you who could possibly help you. That's what he's saying. It's not somebody from among them able for God to do something with? No. The question is, what we have to realize right now, the question is answered or told to us in Joshua, Joshua 13, verse 1. This is why there's not one among them. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So why couldn't God just raise up an Ethan or somebody else? There wasn't a single one. There wasn't a single one. From the beginning of Judges, remember last week with Barak, we saw 10,000 able warriors. And if you know the story of Gideon, which we'll get into next week, there are at least 300. There was at least 300. But now the time we get to Samson, God has to literally create one. Has to create one. Imagine that. God cannot find a single, obedient, faithful individual. We have to ask ourselves, what type of darkness has invaded God's people? Now, at this moment, the book of Judges... I want everybody to get, I have to frame all of this. This is potentially the worst God's people, the position they've ever been in. Like this is the darkest moment of their existence. And it's all due to the Philistines. Not the Egyptians with slavery, not the Canaanites, not the Moabites. Has anybody seen uh, the 70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Anybody seen it? Nobody? Okay, two people. Remember that great scene? Remember that, that scene? You remember? Yes. Keep that in your mind, Brian, and the other two of you who know what I'm talking about. The Philistines were taking over God's people one by one, invasion of the body snatcher style. What I mean by that is they were intermingling, intermarrying, interchanging them. 
And historians, again, say this is the days of Samson, that they were more in danger of losing their identity than any other moment in their history. So much so that Israel performs mutiny upon their own judge while trying to capture Samson, as we'll see in a little bit. Okay, why? Because they like captivity. They like prison. They like intermarrying. They like the Philistines. They like it. One commentator says, the force of the two communities is so interlocked that even the Lord can find nothing to get a hold of them, or soon get a hold to pry them apart. Enter Samson. Enter Samson. But like the God of thunder, he must make a completely new hammer, one that the world has never seen before. This is why Samson is so unique, because he is like nobody else. He's like nobody, not nobody we've ever, ever, ever seen before. Samson is a, a, sludge, a sledgehammer. Okay, look at verse 2 of chapter 13. This is where things get nuts. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Monoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Remember, barrenness in a culture of that culture meant total, total devastation for a family. You are completely and utterly purposeless. Verse 4, therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson, before he is born, has set upon him what is called the Nazarite vow. So if you're saying, Casey, who cares? Bear with me. The vow of a Nazarite, established in Numbers 16, listen to this, was typically set for a period of time and was voluntary. But it was neither for Samson. Neither. He was to behold this vow all of his life, whether he liked it or not. Now, as we just read, we can see this vow has three primary things. I have a screen just to make things really easier, okay? He had to abstain from dead bodies or anything unclean. He's abstained from like vineyards and vines and grapes and wine. And some of you are like, right now, abstaining from wine? Mm-hmm. No, no, like the Nazarite Valley ain't for me, right? Rosé, hey, hey. And then lastly, don't cut your hair. Straight up point break style. Do not cut your hair. That's it. That's it. Now, since Samson's story is massive, three whole chapters, and it's that way because he is the symbol of the book of Judges. The entire story of the book of Judges is symbolized in Samson's life. But beyond that, I just want everybody to to bear with me because he's so big and the story is so massive, today will not be exhaustive. So we're going to go through it kind of quickly. I'm going to jump around. I'm going to make some points here and there. You are going to be all very, very disappointed that we have to skip over some rad things. It just is what it is, and I apologize. So I want to highlight three failures. Three failures of Samson and how God responds or how God is seen in those failures. So Judges 14, verse 2, this is going to get cray. Samson went down to Timnah, and Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Samson is partaking of the very thing he is supposed to set right. I want that girl. Verse 3. But his father and his mother said to them, Is there not a woman among you know, your own daughters or your relatives? Or among all the other people that you may take as a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. For she is what? 
right in my eyes. Samson, the son of promise, the hero of God's people, Thor's mighty hammer, is the living embodiment of Israel. He is the living embodiment of Israel, as we discussed last week. What does that mean? It means he is only doing things that is right in his own eyes. Church, friends, this is the very definition of sin, what we see right here. When you do things that are only right in your own eyes, that is sin. Now, I know if you're not here and you're not a Christian, or I think we can all kind of understand that sin is very spiritual vernacular, right? But for anybody here who follows Jesus, we want to keep it at spiritual vernacular. We want to keep talking about sin because when we talk about transgressions or lust or imperfections, and we call it sin, what that means is we are allowing God to define our, fault, our failures, our faults, and our mistakes. Okay, and as Samson's failure of a story skips from his birth to adulthood, just like Jesus, it all starts right here. Possibly Samson is unbelievably sick of the Nazarite vow. He is over it. And in this moment, he just says, forget it. Look at verse five. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards. The vineyards. You remember the Nazarite vow? Scholars suggest you only travel through other people's vineyards for one reason. Snackaroos. He wants some snacks. And behold, this is so awesome. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. You know, as you do. Right? Verse 8. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see that carcass. Where's that thing? And behold, there is a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Ew. All of us would go, run, this is disgusting. Let's see what Samson does. Mmm, I'm hungry. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. Yum, yum, yum. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. Right? What did Samson just do? It seems like he broke the vow in multiple places, even defiling his own parents. Essentially, Samson is unbecoming Samson, meaning he is no longer caring about God or his holy connection to God anymore. Fail. Failure. What makes Samson so different from the rest of the 16 that we've been going over? Every other of the 16 is going in towards a heaven direction. They are progressing. They are going towards a renewed holiness. Samson is digressing. And yet... Hebrews chapter 11. He is getting worse. What does this teach us about God? It teaches that God cannot be boxed in. Because it's irksome, at least for me, it's irksome that God would use people in their failures and sin. My inner lawyer wants to scream and shout, Objection! When I read these stories. Because my inner lawyer goes, God should only use good, godly, pure, right people. And ultimately, when I do that, all I've done is I replaced right in my own eyes for one, right in my own eyes for another. I bring right in my own eyes to spirituality or to faith. So before we go any further, we have to at least ask in this room, is there any place in your life that you have boxed God in? God, you must work this way. 
There's no way God can use, if we think about it, an abusive stepdad. At least, that's my gut reaction. There's no way God can use a corrupt politician. There's no way God can use a vow breaker, but God can use me. We're missing the point. See, the reason this matters is we must remind ourselves of a God who is not limited to human standards or preferences. If he was, grace ceases to be grace. We must remind our faith that even in our failures, we are not useless. Even in your failures, you are not useless. That his love and his unmerited love is independent of our works or our worth. We have to stop gauging God's goodness on depending upon our own goodness. We must stop that as a church. God can use us in our disobedience and our obedience. God can use us in our faithfulness and our failures. Now, there's, this isn't justification of failure so grace can abound. Rather, our failures give our faith a reason to rejoice because they are the bedrock for his success. So every time we come to a failure within our life, we have to start going, that is the bedrock, that is the foundation, that is the concrete slab for his success. He can use this like honey in a carcass rather than flies in maggots. God can be found in the most appalling of places. God can use whatever vessel he desires in order to produce sweetness that is his plans and purposes. Lutzer again, he says, those who have failed miserably are often the first to see God's formula for success. Now quickly, Samson goes from here. He's engaged to a Philistine. He hosts a party, guarantee There's alcohol there. He's getting crazy. And guess what he decides to do? Entertainment back then for a party. It wasn't karaoke. It wasn't Falcons. (laughs) It's going to be a great party. It's going to be a good party. It wasn't Falcons. You know what he decides to do? Gather around. Let me tell you a riddle. Get around here, everybody. If you're ever at a party and somebody's like, I want to start doing riddles, run. That is a lame party. I'm out. But he's like, I want to do riddles. Come here. Come here. And Samson says, if anybody can guess this riddle, I'll give you, not money or whatever, I'll give you 30 pieces of clothes. That's what he promises them. And some people are there are like, this is great. Hey, you hear that? And then he goes, then he tells the riddle, but they can't figure it out. And so they go to his, his, his fiance and they say, tell us the answer to this riddle, so on and so forth. She does. Now look at this, Judges 14, 18. What is sweeter than honey? This is the answer to the riddle. What is stronger than a lion? So they correctly got the riddle right due to the betrayal. And he, Samson, said to them, if you would not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Basically, if you have not have cheated with my cow of a wife. Ladies, he's single. Are you kidding me? What a jerk. Verse 19. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Azkaban and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had been told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to the father's house and Samson's wife was given to the companion who had been his best man. Samson kills 30 other people, takes their bloodied, soiled clothes. He goes up to the debtors and he goes, here you go the blood of your brothers. That's how he pays off the riddle. Then we find out that he's going to go back to his girl and be like, hey, what's up? What happened? Like, 
you told him the riddle. <laughs> what happened? And the dad answers the door. And he's like, oh, I thought you hated her. I gave her away to your best friend. Oops. This is for reals. This is some real Game of Thrones garbage going on right here. So then out of anger, rather than him just going home being like, hmm, life sucks. You know what he does? He grabs 300 foxes in a night. It would take me two and a half months to maybe get one fox. Okay. Like, I would never be able to do it. He grabs 300 of a night, and if that wasn't far enough, he ties their tails together, lights them on fire so that they go in like a zigzag motion, and completely sets all of their grain fields on fire. <laughs> and then in response, this is where things get dark, in response, the Philistines then burn his, now I guess, ex-fiance and her father. They burn them. There is nobody who is coming out of this alive other than Samson. And he goes from here and he kills a thousand men with a jawbone and then he lifts up city gates out of the ground and carries them up a hill and and out of hot anger. God is completely off the table at this point. All of Samson's guerrilla tactics are used for personal achievement and revenge only. That's it. Or so it seems. This might be the greatest lesson in warranted certainty or faith out of all of the 16. Right here. So then what is it? We will only know if we look at Hebrews 11, verse 32, and read all the way through. We're going to see it in vivid color right now. This is the author of the book of Hebrews saying, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, Now get this, who through faith conquered kingdoms? Samson, enforced justice, Samson, obtained promises, Samson, stopped the mouths of lions, Samson, eats disgusting honey, Samson, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight, Samson, Samson, Samson. God's wants and his wills cannot be stopped. If this last lesson that we just did was that God is uncontrollable, then surely this one is God is unstoppable. Practically, what this means for Samson, though, is even though that he, he thought he was doing this for himself, God was tearing apart the intermingling tentacles of his people with evil. Samson's like, fine, I'm going to go set these things on fire. What he was actually doing was the hammer was working. Godly division was happening. Even though none of this horrendous violence God wanted, it is a backhanded fulfillment. It is a backhanded fulfillment. Bear with me. What if that is true of people in government? What if that is true of your boss? What if that is also true of your loss, of the cancer, or of the debt? For Samson, it's nearly impossible to see it. We can't, because between the failure, the hot anger, the lust, and him just seeing things in his own eyes, his own vision, we can't see it. Friends, it takes faith to see this. Remember how Hebrews chapter 11 started. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. The faith to see, God can turn ruins into something praiseworthy. 
the faith to see that God can turn miscarriages and bankruptcy into something praiseworthy. It takes conviction to see that God can restore community after moral failure. It takes faith to see that God is more powerful and more present than the penetrating failure. Now, if this point isn't landing, and some of you are like, okay, move on to the next point, then we might struggle to trust that his plans are ultimately good for us. Meaning, okay, I understand that God's doing things, he's he's got his purpose, but do we trust that it's good for us? Or we also just want that purpose is now. Perhaps we're struggling because we just want it now, that we are not willing to wait for a future resurrection. And let me just say this, both can weaken one's faith. Hear me so clearly. Faith that rises above failures is one which believes that his plans are good even at the cost of ourselves. Even at the cost of ourselves. Did you hear that? Welcoming the hard situation for a later, greater, possibly unseen or unexperienced good. Say, I will take it. That's how much faith I have that I will take it. That's how we know faith is incarnated within our lives. God's purposes will come about. It's only at the level that we will see it is where faith is measured. And then, okay, and then finally, (coughs) Judges 16, verse 4. After this, he loved. The first time we actually see him love a woman. He loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Keep in mind, out of all the women in Samson's life, this is the first time one of them is named. Okay? Verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. To humble him. Even his enemies are like, this guy is so arrogant. <laughs> okay? To bound him so that, so that uh, one could subdue him. Now, this is hilarious because this is the fourth time that Delilah will try to trick Samson. And he basically hears it every night, her consistent, constant asking. And he's not picking up on the clues. Every night she asks him, tell me how someone can kill you. Like every night, how does somebody murder you? Every night, he like plays around with her. Oh, well, if somebody tied my hair in a braid. Like whatever could possibly be. And he never picks up on it. But here's what's amazing. Did we pick up on this? Did you pick up on this? That they cannot figure out where Samson's strength comes from. Why are you so strong? So here's what happens. If you you type in Samson into Google, you get this. Okay, this is Samson. If you start scroll down, you, oh, that's like Joaquin Phoenix. Dang, look at that. If you go down, this is Samson. You go another Google search, this is Samson. Super awkward angle. This is Samson. This is bullcrap. Absolutely, because if it was about his muscles, guess what? She would not be saying, where's your strength come from? She wouldn't be saying that. Because you want to know what Samson probably looked like? That's probably what Samson looked like. Pick any one of them. And this is your Samson. No joke. I'm guessing it's Kip. But can you imagine? This is what Samson looked like. 
Because, again, we all get it. You guys do not have to guess where my strength comes from. You know it comes from my godlike physique. You know that. Samson's a different story. Not so for Samson. So I'm guessing that's what Samson looked like. Judges 16, verse 17 through 18. And he told all his heart to her and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. So he's done with her asking and he tells her the truth. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and I will be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines. We're going to jump to verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. Is it, is it sad to us or morbidly ironic that Samson's eyes were gouged out as punishment? A man who has been doing what was right in his own eyes for decades, and he is now blind. A man who has been confidently growing in his own ability. Truly, he is a one-man army. He is a single-man war. And in a perverted twist of irony, Samson has used God's power as means to remove him from God's personhood. I just need God's gift. I don't need God. And then in a hot, searing moment, it's over. It's done. You see, to the Philistines, capturing Samson wasn't just victory over a strong man. To them, it's victory over the Israel's God. To them, God is now controllable and stoppable. Samson's final threat of the Nazarite vow had just been shaved from his freaking head. We must see that his hair is the symbol of like a wedding ring is. His hair was the final straw. And now Samson is bald and he is denuded uh, from everything that he was supposed to become. In more ways than one, the Philistines are not Samson's greatest enemy. Who is? Himself. So what was his hot and good response? The minute he got his head shaved, the minute all this happened, the minute he's frustrated, we have to see him just go out and rip people apart and at least like try to bite them because he's not strong anymore. What does he do? What does he do? Verse 20. This is Samson's hot, fleshly anger response. And she said, she's like messing with him. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as I do other times and shake myself free. Oh, it's fine. My head, your hair is gone. I'm just going to go do what I always do but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know. Friends, he was so confident in his own ability and he was so independent that he couldn't even tell that the Lord's presence and power was removed. Terrifying. This should freak us out because God forbid that ever happened to us as individuals or as a community, as a church. You see, where the Philistines thought Samson was doing something to get his power. Delilah, find out what Samson's doing. You know what Samson thought? I don't have to do anything for this power. I don't have to do anything. See, what this teaches us is that faith is first and foremost, before it's about victory or any other 16 things that we've covered, it's about a loving, dependent nearness to the Lord. Could there be anybody in here today who has not realized the distance that has grown between you and God? thinking, oh, I've got this, we're good, I'm strong, I can make this happen. 
And then God is going, I have removed my presence or my power from you a long time ago. When will you wake up? See, faith is and must remain relationship-based. This is what Samson has forgotten, but God has not. So God finally, like with Israel, reclaims Samson, but it all comes at a horrible, horrible price. As we read earlier, death and destruction. As Steele read, it comes at death and destruction. And Samson's death, where he prays for the second time only, Second time only, out of his entire story, he prays for strength to do what was right. And as one commentator said, the Samson narrative begins with a strong man who's revealed to be weak, but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than ever, excuse me, than ever he was before. See, where his new hair starts to grow, it's growing like new mercies upon his head, and he sets himself between two pillars, and he pushes, making his death the most important moment of his entire life. He is more faithful in death than any other event. Friends, the gospel truth of Jesus Christ in this narrative is way too easy. It's so oozing and leaking and falling from this pages, is it not? The foretold birth, the betrayal of people who were near to him, but ultimately Samson is a pre-chorus to a victorious defeat, where by a sacrificial death, God's undeserving people were delivered. I love how Samson's life began. If you remember, we read it. Judges 13.5 says, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from, whom the, uh, from the womb. Look at this. And he shall begin. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. What began with Samson's death was finished with Christ's death. That being, no single failure could remove or separate or overcome God's unfailing love. Even answering our question that we started with today, which is, is suicide the last failing choice of an eternal decision? Surely, suicide, or taking one's own life, is absolutely heartbreaking heartbreaking. I believe we could even call it murder. It is a form of murder. Something that God takes zero pleasure, joy in whatsoever. He would never want suicide to happen. And if there's anybody here contemplating, has contemplated, nobody who's somebody who's contemplating, we need to take action. And what they need to know what possibly you need to know in this room today is that there is so much more and you are beyond, beyond, beyond loved and cared for and wanted. But I want everybody to know, as I have dealt with in my pastoral ministry or maybe possibly you are dealing with today, when it comes to suicide, friends, if we think about our loved ones or so on and so forth, be secure. The Bible teaches that all sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven through faith. And the victorious defeat of death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eternal destiny is sealed and locked up tight at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. So both Samson's death and Christ inspire us to a new way of living, even with our failures. You see, as Samson killed more enemies in his death, so did Jesus. The enemies of us being identified by our failures, has been crushed. 
Truly, we can't even consider Samson a failure because what Jesus has done has removed that title, that scarlet letter, that identity form from him. The enemy of us considering that our failures are dead ends or non-redeemable, crushed, crushed, crushed. And it is by faith and obedience and believing in this, we will then have the spirit's power like Samson did to say, we're, instead of me saying, I want it, we will have the strength to say, I want him. Instead of saying, I deserve it, we will have the strength of saying, I deserve death. Instead of saying, my strength, talents, and abilities are all about me, we'll confess, oh, Jesus, this is all about you, from you, through you, by you, and for you. Friends, do not waste your failures this week. Today, tomorrow, embrace them as they force us to depend more and more on the faith in a truer and better Samson, that is Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Pray with me.